Professor Marianne from our hen house, her knowledge overflows. Legislation from cat to pig to mouse, she knows all of those. Critter defenders from across the globe share their stories first to last. So welcome to what we now know as the Animal Law Podcast. It's the Animal Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's going to be a really great show. We're going to get to talk to Justin Marceau about the recent ag-ag lawsuit in Idaho Really, really exciting news. And, and you know, every once in a while there's some good news out of the animal law movement. Well, I think more than there used to be. So it's it'll be a really great day to be discussing that. And then, actually, before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about some other good news. Maybe a little qualified, but good news. Uh, on the puppy mill uh, lawsuits, uh, you may have been following this or not, but... You know, something like 60 communities around the country have banned the sale of puppies and sometimes kittens from uh, from mills uh, and required that, that pet stores sell animals only, or at least puppies and kittens, only that they've gotten from the shelters, which is, you know, completely amazing. And, you know, I had no idea it was that many until I started reading these articles because of the two recent lawsuits, and these hadn't been challenged uh, until relatively recently, and then lawsuits were brought by pet store owners in Phoenix, Arizona, and in uh, Cook County, um, which includes Chicago, of course, in Illinois. And decisions in both of those cases have come down, and they have both sided with the communities that banned uh, the sale of puppies from uh, anything other than shelters, which is great, great news, because obviously, if these lawsuits had been unsuccessful, all of those communities that have passed such laws uh, would have been threatened with lawsuits uh, to get rid of those laws. I'm really pretty pleased. I, I, not a totally unexpected outcome, but but you never know. And of course, these cases could get appealed, so you still never know. And both of them were based largely on arguments based in the Dormant Commerce Clause, saying this discriminated against out-of-state businesses and on equal protection. And I don't think it was very hard for the courts to find significant differences in selling puppies from and kittens from shelters. But the at least the Phoenix law also allowed breeders within Phoenix to sell their own puppies. And so pet stores that were selling puppies that were from out-of-state Puppy mills were arguing that this discriminated against those out-of-state puppy mills because people much prefer to get uh, puppies that they can interact with personally. And so even those those out-of-state puppy mills could still sell over the Internet. That's just not an adequate substitute for selling puppies in person. Personally, I think selling puppies at all is disgusting, loathsome behavior that should be outlawed. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? Internet sales are a huge problem. I wish I felt as strongly as as these uh, local pet stores that internet sales are are not the wave of the future. I just can't believe that people 
buy a puppy over the internet, have it flown to them. What do they think? What do they think this puppy is going through on the on their way to their new uh, beloved home, ripped away from his or her mother, put on an airplane? I, you know, people. I, well, let's not get into that. Um, but anyway, this dormant commerce, you know, there were other dormant commerce clause arguments. And as I said, an equal protection argument, and they were all unsuccessful. So Phoenix's um, anti-puppy mill law was upheld, as was the one in Cook County. Sadly, in Cook County, which I guess Cook County includes Chicago, but it also includes other communities that are independent, you know, have some independence from the county. And two of those communities that actually have uh, pet stores in them opted out. Uh, They passed their own laws. Obviously, they were lobbied by their local stores and uh, they they caved in, which is sad. So the the law is not as successful as as one would hope. One of the uh, village attorneys for one of those communities said, the village did not see the need to drive them out of business. It's not like a chain where they don't care about the neighborhood. Really? Uh, is the question here whether they care about the neighborhood? Is anybody talking about whether they care about the neighborhood? Like they, what do they care about the dogs? Really get your priorities straight folks. But you know, even though there's a lot of other ways that people can buy puppies when one of these laws has been passed, I still think they're a really, really good thing. People, of course, can go go out of the city limits and, and buy puppies, and they can buy them over the Internet. If you want to buy a puppy or a kitten, you know, they, they include kittens. But, of course, most people don't get kittens from kitten mills. It's a growing business, but not nearly as huge as the puppy mills. They, they still can do it. But the idea that all of these communities actually have a law on the books recognizing that people should not be buying animals from these horrible uh, mills and and maybe you can do it but the fact that there's a law in the books prohibiting you from doing it in the community that you live in that really has got to say a lot i mean it's got to wake people up and it's got to encourage people to go to the shelters so i think they're great laws they're 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 certainly not an answer i mean one of the answers we need to do is get a definition of a puppy mill it's so easy for these people to say oh no th- these facilities aren't puppy mills they're commercial breeders they comply with usda regulations well usda regulations are shit. And, you know, they're better than nothing. I'm not going to say that they're not. Places that don't follow USDA regulations are even worse, but they're just not good enough. We all know that. And they're not even close to good enough. I mean, and people shouldn't be breeding puppies anyway, but all in all, kind of some good decisions coming down of late. And so it's nice to be reporting on positives. And if you're interested in the, in the details of the Commerce Clause argument in particular, the, the court goes into it in, in some detail in the Arizona case, which is called, I think, Puppy Love, Puppy Love versus City of Phoenix, something like that, something stupid. One of the, I find the most entertaining things about this whole nonsensical series of lawsuits is that a while back, the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, an organization that I loathe more than factory farms in many, many ways, because they're facilitators and they, they hide behind their professional facade of being veterinarians. And they ran a contest a while ago for law students interested in animal law. And the law students were, were allowed to write on one of two subjects. One had to do with Los Angeles, the constitutionality of Los Angeles's spay-neuter law, and the other was the constitutionality of this uh, 
anti-puppy mill legislation in Chicago. And, you know, they, they got their entries and they gave a prize. And, you know, they're obviously, they were just, <laughs> can you not afford lawyers? Can you not do the research yourself? This is just a way of getting law students to do the research for you on your cases. Um, not that the AVMA was actually a participant in these cases, but you got to believe there were conversations going on. So great pleasure to hear that that some law students might have won some prizes, but nobody won any lawsuits. Now I'm so happy to welcome to the Our Hen House Animal Law Podcast, Justin Marceau. Professor Marceau teaches at the University of Denver's Law School, and he is a brilliant legal scholar. But he is also a lawyer. Uh, uh, he has been re- actually representing clients on behalf of animals. And one of his great triumphs in, in doing that is the recent AGAG lawsuit in Idaho, where working with other lawyers from other organizations, they won just a terrific victory. And I'm sure you've heard about it, but now we're going to hear about it in some detail. Justin, welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We're so excited to have you. You have had a huge win in the courts. Uh, you're the, I, I, as I understand, the lead counsel on a whole group of, of counsel who are working on this case because a number of organizations were involved, but you were there at the forefront in the latest ag-gag decision. Is that correct? Yeah, as one of the leaders, I mean, I think we're, uh, you know, we're all animal rights lawyers, and so we have a, a less hierarchical bench. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a team of lawyers that have been working on this very hard. And I had the, the privilege of arguing the, the summary judgment and taking a, a leading role in most of the drafting. Well, we're very excited to get to get talking about about how the case came out, about the details of the law that was struck down, and about some of the implications for other uh, ag-ag statutes around the country, which, um, of course, don't follow this Idaho's law specifically. So there might be uh, differences, but let's 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 get to the win. Uh, before we get to possible problems down the road, because this was a pretty exciting win. I can't imagine a better decision coming out of district court in Idaho. Yeah, absolutely. No, we were very excited. It was uh, August 3rd, um, and Judge Windmill, uh, the chief district court judge for the District of Idaho, um, granted summary judgment on both our First Amendment and our equal protection claims, uh, essentially saying, there was no legitimate basis for these gag laws, and certainly under the First Amendment, they didn't survive heightened scrutiny, uh, strict scrutiny. Yeah, very strong language in the decision. It was really a treat to read it. I never read decisions until I have to. People are always like, oh, did you read the decision? And, you know, unless I have absolutely have to, I generally don't. So I had to in order to talk to you today. I'm so glad I did. It was such a great decision. Let's start, let's start um, talking with talking about the the provisions of um, the law and how the court decided regarding the misrepresentations. One of the one of the things that yeah. this law did, uh, as I understand it, is is criminalize lying to get a job at a factory farm. And uh, right. how did the court right. deal with that? Yeah. So there's. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's sort of two general templates or forms that the, the egg egg statutes take, and one of the the features is to criminalize the misrepresentations or lies to gain access. Um, and so the Idaho statute did that. And in fact, in, in section 1C, uh, 1A criminalized all access by misrepresentations. So, you know, pretending to be a meter reader or 
uh, and purchaser of meat and coming to the slaughterhouse yourself. And then in section C, um, sort of targeted the heart of the, the prior investigation in Idaho, which was a, an undercover employment investigation by Mercy for Animals. They, the, the law criminalized uh, obtaining employment um, by, in a facility through the use of misrepresentation. Now, it's my understanding that courts have held that uh, resume fraud can be made illegal uh, without running afoul of the First Amendment. So how did this differ here than just lying on a resume and getting, you know, telling people you have an MD when you actually don't? Right. I mean, the key difference is that, um, I mean, there's a couple of, of important points. I mean, the first point is that, yeah, if you're lying about your qualifications for a job, um, no one will, at least we're not going to defend that as protected speech. Uh, we think that is the sort of lie that is designed to uh, incur costs or provide yourself with a material benefit because of the lie. And the Supreme Court has said those type of lies don't uh, gain protection. So, you know, lying and saying you're a lawyer or even a paralegal, lying and saying that you're a law student or lying and saying you have some medical credential or more relevant to the ag industry, you know, lying and saying you know how to use heavy equipment or that you're a very experienced, um, I don't know, uh, milker or something like that. Uh, these could raise uh, problems because you are lying to gain the job in a sort of resume fraud way you suggested. Um, what the plaintiffs here, um, investigative groups including PETA, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and others have said, and the ACLU in particular, the, are the investigators, uh, investigative plaintiffs, have said is that they want to be able to make deceptions that either understate their qualifications. So, for example, don't admit that they went to the Columbia School of Journalism, <laughs> or they don't admit that they, um, you know, have uh, lived in Brooklyn for the last 10 years when they're applying in Wyoming, uh, or something like that, right? And uh, they may even understate the amount of agricultural employment they have had um, for fear that that might raise suspicions. They may not say that they worked in a dairy uh, in Montana before they came and apply for this Idaho job. Um, and so it's that type of misrepresentation and also political misrepresentations. So um, we know through document disclosures that the uh, Idaho dairymen had sent to their members a model uh, employment uh, application and sort of screening procedure. And one of the questions was, do you have any affiliations with animal rights groups uh, or other political groups? You know, tell me what they are. And so the failure to say that you uh, affiliate with or work with or whatever with PETA or the ALDF or something else, um, that would itself make you a criminal under the Idaho statute. Uh, and so we pressed very carefully that we weren't saying you could lie generally about your qualifications or that you could misrepresent uh, your ability to do the job. Um, instead, we said you should be able to misrepresent that you're there as a Dateline reporter or a PETA investigator. Uh, and in that sense, the court uh, resoundingly agreed. That criminalizing that would indeed run afoul of the First Amendment. Exactly right. So, uh, of course, that was not the only provision of the law in, an, in addition to prohibiting lying to get a job there, it had an, an outright ban on videotaping and taking uh, exactly. photographs. And and the court also agreed with you that the ban on, 
on these activities were in violation of the First Amendment. And before we start talking about the specifics of that, can you explain why making a video is is speech and therefore subject to First Amendment protections? Is this clearly established in the law, or did this case take take that issue further? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that these um, egg-egg cases are so exciting and that myself, uh, as a law professor, one of my other uh, colleagues at the University of Denver, Alan Chen, um, joined this legal fight, uh, is that it, it raises some very interesting constitutional questions. Uh, our view is that the First Amendment does provide this protection and that that's well entrenched in existing doctrine, but that there's not case law that sort of takes it to this point. And indeed, I think one of the most um, significant parts of this case and the parts of the case that will be sort of reverberating around the country is a line where Judge Windmill says that, quote, the act of recording is pure expressive activity. Um, so, you know, he had to grapple with this question of is it speech um, or is it something different? Uh, the state had argued that it was just conduct. And he said, no, you know, the plaintiffs are correct that this is an expressive activity uh, that falls within the First Amendment. And, you know, the way we had framed that is to you know, basically understand that um, all speech is essentially a form of conduct. I mean, other than, you know, us talking, I guess my, the vibration of my vocal cords could be conduct. But really everything other than actual, um, you know, voice uh, speaking is uh, preceded by conduct. So the act of writing a letter um, of, you know, producing something like that is, you know, moving your hand in conduct type motions. Uh, everything can be broken down into its component parts. So, you know, there can be no um, great uh, musician if the government bans the sale of instruments. There could be no great artists if they banned the sale of paint. Um, but we think that this, you know, banning the sale of paint or banning the sale of instruments would implicate the First Amendment. Uh, and so we sort of asked the court to say, look, there's not a case on point that says um, recording has already been recognized as something that you do that is equivalent to talking. But if you say that recording isn't speech, then you're essentially um, saying there's no right to watch video or that, that the you know, exhibition or display of video might not be speech. And, and that can't be right. We know in this age that watching a YouTube political ad or political speech is just as, as dominant or salient as going to a political rally yourself. Uh, and the act of the recording it must be some form of expression to. Uh, and again, the court said, you know, I think you're probably right. Um, at the end of oral argument, the judge had said to the party, he said, you know, this case is at the interstitial boundaries of the First Amendment. It's, uh, it's not something that I think is easy to decide. Um, and then in his order, he said, you know, nonetheless, it's pretty clear that if I held that recording was not a form of speech activity, we would be in a, the Orwellian world. Yeah, very, very powerful language. Of course, the court didn't only hold that video recordings were speech and that these were protected speech, but that the prohibitions on making them were both content-based and viewpoint-based. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you explain the court's reasoning? Yeah, I mean, the key thing here is to recognize that this law um, 
is, I mean, there's, there's two ways to, to assess whether a law is content or viewpoint-based, and the first is looking at the face of the statute, and the second is by looking at the um, purpose or motive behind the law. And in this vein, the law was both motivated by a purpose the court found explicitly to suppress um, pro-animal or animal safety speech, and the law on its face was content-based. And the test generally for assessing whether a law is content-based, I mean, there's lots of formulations, anyone that has studied the First Amendment knows, but one uh, sort of easy rule of thumb is if you have to listen to it or watch it uh, in order to determine if the person is a criminal or is violating the law, then it's content-based, right? So in other words, if um, Recording is speech, but you have to watch the recording in order to know if it's a crime. Um, it's not just a matter of did he take a recording or where did he take it at, but we have to see what is on the video. Then it's controlling the content, the subject matter, and then it's content-based. And so in this case, the relevant provision of the statute, Section 1D, um, makes it a crime only to record the, quote, operations of the agricultural facility. That means that it would be a crime to record uh, animal abuse. It would be a crime to record um, some sort of work that blocked the fire escape for, for workers. It would be a crime to show environmental contamination occurring. But it would not be a crime to um, record you know, lunch break at the farm. It wouldn't be a crime to record sunset or sunrise at the farm or anything else that was not the workings of the farm or the agricultural facility. That makes it content-based, said the court, and I think correctly so, that you have to see what is on the video um, in order to know whether it's criminal or not. And uh, in support, and secondarily, um, the purpose in this in the legislative history is, is striking. And Judge Windmill quotes some of it. Um, he doesn't even quote one of my favorite lines. There was a representative uh, from Idaho, a state uh, representative in the, in the House, who said um, something along the lines of, this bill would have never surfaced if the animal activists hadn't gone to the internet and called for a boycott, right? So it's really a smoking gun statement. They said, you know, we would not have sought this legal protection for the industry if they hadn't tried to get publicity, if they hadn't posted it on the internet, they hadn't done a media campaign. Um, I mean, the director, the president of the organization that drafted the law, the Idaho Dairyman, went so far as to say, um, the reason we need this ag egg log is to keep um, the animal rights groups, like the Animal Legal Defense Fund, off of their soapbox. Uh, the, soapbox <laughs> being, right, I mean, the soapbox being the metaphor for political speech. So it was very hard for the, them in defending the law to come back and say it had nothing to do with speech, we promise. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we were just trying to protect neutral objectives um, after they had said that their desire was to prevent this. Um, so, you know, the court looked at that and said these were people and legislators and drafters who wanted to stop speech on something like this. And that's not what the First Amendment likes. The First Amendment, you know, if it means anything, it's designed to encourage robust and open debate. 
And this law instead um, sort of put the state in the position of taking sides of, on the debate and had the effect of burdening speech that was critical of the animal agricultural industry. Yeah, it's hard to believe that we will ever again get so lucky that they will be so stupid as to as to so blatantly <laughs> announce their motives in passing these kinds of law. Well, right, but there's you a never know. hubris in it. But, you know, but that's all right. I mean, it, this always happens. This was like the first, you know, the early Supreme Court cases in the civil rights era. Um, the legislature said things that were, you know, not repeated. But we still get laws struck down when the purpose or the effect is is so clearly to injure a group. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the tougher cases, the next legislature, uh, you know, that goes back and enacts one of these laws in silence. Yes, <laughs> um, much wiser. Uh, you know, the good news is this this case, they, they could not enact a statute that said the same things as this because it would be facially content-based. But, but you're right that it would be an interesting case to then say, uh, look, this silent legislative debate still bespeaks a motive that was similar to the last time they did it or this other state did it. It's absolutely true. So what, as, as a result of, of finding that it was content-based and viewpoint-based, what was the applicable legal standard that the court had to apply? Right, so when a law is, is content-based uh, or, or viewpoint-based, um, strict scrutiny, the highest uh, scrutiny applicable to constitutional review applies, which requires uh, that the government then, the burden shifts to the government to advance a compelling government interest and then show that the law that they have passed is narrowly tailored to that compelling interest. And in this case, uh, the court actually said uh, they they the judge bought our reasoning that this was neither a compelling interest nor was it narrowly tailored. He said, look, this isn't a compelling government interest because compelling interests need to serve the public good. And this is just protecting a private industry that's highly regulated from public scrutiny. We don't think that's actually in the public good, um, that it's not a compelling interest to protect an industry from whistleblowing. And they said, even if we accepted that the states, what the state says, this is just about, you know, protecting against trespass and, and personal privacy. Um, this law isn't narrowly tailored to those ends um, because there's other less speech intrusive ways of doing so. You can have generally applicable trespass laws. You can have defamation laws to protect against reputation. You can have trade secret laws. All of those generally applicable laws, um, barring a tweaking of them by a legislature to make them inappropriate. You know, conventional trespass is totally constitutional. The protection of trade secrets and intellectual property, entirely constitutional. Uh, and so the courts sort of reminded the state, you have options here. If your interests are protecting private property, Every state and the federal government does that. Um, what you really wanted to do was protect an industry from criticism. And what you should do is what the First Amendment requires you to do is to use counter speech whether, rather than government suppression of speech. So if you think they're lying about you, sue them for defamation and do your own press campaign. Um, don't silence them. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the decision because it's like we we all know that they can't really do that. <laughs> you know? Right. No, I mean, it's <laughs> But it was so entertaining to have the court say, just just go out there and tell your side of the story. But um, they have a problem with that. Their side of the story is pretty dark. Right. Their side of the story doesn't look good. I mean, that's one of the, you know, when even in sitting, reading legislative transcripts in these cases and then looking at um, the, what the state is forced to argue, it's always, you know, it's, it's one of these strange things because the state of Idaho's position in this case was that the, their best defense of this law was these people have to have a right to defend their reputation against these malicious 
pro-vegan people. And, you know, the judge sort of said, well, that may be true. I don't know. But, you know, you do have the law of defamation. And that's what I reminded the court during my argument. I said, you know, if they want to protect their reputation, Your Honor, when a video that comes out, comes out that is truly staged, when that happens, that group and that individual are going to be liable for defamation. And you know that, Your Honor. Like, that's, that's entirely cognizable under the current law of defamation. And he made a nod to that in his opinion. He said, yeah, if there are, you know, staged videos and it's not real and it didn't happen in the way that they present, then they're going to be liable. Uh, and so even though the industry, after every investigation, has this sort of response of, oh, well, this isn't really what happens here. Uh, and by the way, this was probably orchestrated by the investigator because they're an unsavory person um, and a vegan. Uh, now we have law on point that says, well, your remedy is to sue them, not to pass a law that says, you know, you can't do it. And in fact, no one is going to sue for these investigations because it brings more bad publicity to the to to what was not staged at all, right? I mean, that's that's the reality. No one thinks that the, what's on these videos are anything less than the industry norms or some particular acts of abuse. There's so many great precedents in here, and I hadn't thought of that one, but that is that is a really valuable thing to be able to bring back. Another thing that the court stated that I really love is that in, in finding that pr- protecting the privacy interests of these businesses was not a compelling interest, um, as you mentioned, the court mentioned that this was a highly regulated industry, right. so their their privacy interests are lesser, and also stated that the state completely ignores that food production is not a private matter. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure whether that's been said before, but I'm really glad it was said. Yeah, I, you know, I had not seen anything um, that teed it up this nicely. I had um, in the, when, when Oprah was sued in the, uh, the food disparagement case, uh, many years ago in the Eastern District of Texas, that district court judge had said something along the lines that I had quoted to Judge Windmill, which was that it's hard to imagine um, a matter of greater public concern than the way our food is produced. And Judge Windmill sort of took that to the next level and said, you know, look, protecting industry, that is an industry that's highly regulated and producing our food supply from whistleblowing is not an interest that the court or the government should ever contemplate as legitimate, right? That this is a highly regulated interest, excuse me, industry that's doing very important things that relate to animal welfare, the environment, and our food safety. And to pretend that that is tantamount to video recording, uh, you know, peeping toms or recording someone in the bathroom is just laughable, right? Because that's what the state argued, and that's what the identitarian argued, that if you accept egg-egg laws as unconstitutional, then the next Next thing is to say that people have a right to spy on you in your bedroom. Um, and he sort of made short work of that. And like you said, one of the best parts of the opinion, just saying this is a highly regulated interest. The privacy interests are limited. And to suggest that you cannot have whistleblowing in such a powerful industry is, is perverse. Yeah, particularly in as much as the court was talking about a case and a statute that was passed that because of concerns about animal welfare, this right. wasn't really, I mean, food safety is one thing. People recognize that and the courts may recognize that as a matter of public concern. But this case almost specifically states that that issues of animal welfare and animal well-being are issues of public interest. Yes, absolutely. 
no, I think that's right. I think that the the judge makes a point by both starting his his opinion by saying, here are some bad things that happened on the Idaho dairy, and then he returns to that in both his First Amendment and his equal protection analysis and says, sometimes whistleblowers do exactly what they should, which is they turn over video footage showing animals being punched, dragged, pulled, stabbed, and he says, we need to encourage this. I mean, that's, you know, this is a judge that is an, a true Idaho judge. I mean, this is a judge who grew up himself on a dairy farm, and yet he looks at the Constitution and he says, we can't possibly justify an industry that wants to hide from its own bad actions. Yeah, very powerful. As if it wasn't enough to win, as you mentioned, to win on First Amendment, you also won on equal protection grounds. Right. And there, here you did not have a very strong test. As we all right. learned in law school, the rational basis test is a pretty tough one to win. And in order to uphold the statute, the court only had to find that it had a rational relationship to a legitimate government interest. It, it, it found that the defendants hadn't even managed to show that. You must have been pretty pleased with that finding. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think it's right, but I, I mean, we were pleased and we obviously thought that it was a winning claim because um, we advanced it. I mean, one of the, you know, exciting things about this case is that it does bring to light the folly of the reasoning that keeping things secret is just the government's prerogative and that as long as we throw our hands in the air and say privacy and private property, um, free speech and equal protection will sort of stand down. Uh, the court says, no, I mean, this is a law that is designed perversely to protect big industry, and that's not a rational interest. Uh, in particular, silencing whistleblowing is not a rational government interest. Um, I will say that I think, um, in fairness to the judge and in fairness to the argument, uh, we didn't win under the lowest standard known to law because um, the applicable rational basis here is, you know, what some people learn in law school is rational basis with bite or height rational basis or non-traditional traditional rational basis. It's the rational basis that resulted in the uh, overturning of the Defense of Marriage Act in Windsor by the Supreme Court, for example. It's the rational basis that resulted in the invalidation of part of the Food Stamp Act in Moreno. Um, it's this sort of heightened rational basis. It's the only rational basis cases that ever win. Um, and so in one sense, you know, maybe that's um, important to note that we, we did convince the court that it had to apply a heightened rational basis and actually look at the motives of the, of the legislatures because um, it was motivated by this improper purpose. I, again, here, this is where the court, again, had an opportunity to look at what the legislators had said, yeah. which was extraordinarily entertaining in this case. I, I actually, <laughs> you added, you mentioned some quotes that actually didn't make it into the opinion, but I did write down a little quote from the opinion just to read, because right. um, I just love it so much. <laughs> um, yeah. The overwhelming evidence gleaned from the legislative history indicates that Section 187042 was intended to silence animal welfare activists or other whistleblowers who seek to publish speech critical of the agricultural production industry. Many legislators made their intent crystal clear by comparing animal rights activists to terrorists, persecutors, vigilantes, blackmailers, and invading marauders who swarm into foreign territory and destroy crops to starve foes into submission. Yeah. <laughs> Other legislators accused animal rights groups of being extreme activists who contrive issues solely to bring in donations to purposely defame agricultural facilities. Uh, 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a it was a legislative uh, the legislative history really was a treasure trove for us. So, uh, so <laughs> as we were so. saying, you might not have that kind of legislative history in other uh, situations because uh, legislators might get a little smarter. Yeah. Are there other ways to show animus other than legislative history? Yeah, I mean, so you know, this is a even more than the First Amendment. I mean, the equal protection claim is is really at the boundaries of what we know about existing law. Um, the Supreme Court has only looked at animus-type equal protection uh, in recent decades in the context of um, laws that persecute or government actions that persecute gays and lesbians. So um, it's, it's a really new and exciting area of the law. I guess, um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that you can show animus um, through a few different devices. One is legislative purpose or sort of legislative history. Another is through um, the effect. Does it have an effect? That, you know, does it end up applying only to animal rights groups? Does it end up having a disproportionate effect on animal rights groups? Um, and some things like that. I mean, the, the Arlington Heights case is a famous case from the civil rights era that, that sets out a number of factors. I think six of them that you can look at for improper, for discerning improper motive, and I think that's relevant to the animus test. But, um, you know, it's definitely harder, and having a clear legislative uh, history will, will make the strongest case for sure. Yeah, and it's great to have this precedent showing this legislative history in this case, because when right. other states do the same thing, Yes. Or do similar things. So yes. far they have. Yes. Uh, at least right. it will be clear that Idaho did it for these bad reasons. Maybe uh, maybe that's going on elsewhere. I don't know. Right. So right. is there going to be an appeal in this case? I mean, I would be shocked if there isn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just sort of what attorney general's offices do. Um, I mean, I think that we couldn't be in a better position go up to the Federal Court of Appeals. Um, we have an opinion here that's well-reasoned and, and tight. And we also have, um, you know, the, I, I think the weight of First Amendment authority on our side, as well as, you know, developing equal protection law. So I would be surprised if they don't appeal. Um, but, you know, I have to say, when I was thinking about getting involved in this case and sort of, you know, doing this uh, as a law professor and kind of helping out with the case, I did my homework. I talked to a lot of the leading First Amendment scholars in the country, and they all said, you know, you're on the right side of this. Uh, and that's why, you know, Erwin Chemerinsky um, joined the case as an amicus. I said, you know, look, I consulted with you earlier about this case. Would you be willing to, to uh, do an amicus brief? And he did. Uh, you know, one of the best uh, public interest firms in the country, the uh, uh, Deepak Gupta's firm in Washington, D.C., wrote an amicus brief that Norman Chemerinsky submitted to the court, and the court specifically cited it. So, you know, I think we're on the right side, and one of the things that Idaho will have to face if they do appeal is because this is a constitutional case in federal court, um, 42 U.S.C. 1988 provides for attorney's fees and costs. So this is in the unique posture for animal rights cases in that the environmental movement has been doing this sort of thing for years, but it's rare that an animal rights case um, brings with the potential of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the organizations. So, you know, we're hoping um, to file a fee motion. We're not hoping we're going to file a fee motion in the coming weeks um, for our fees with the trial court. Um, I don't know how much it would be, but, you know, I, I bet it will be well over, um, you know, 200, 300 somewhere between that and $500,000 that the state owes in attorney's fees 
to the plaintiff. So uh, you can imagine that when they're calling PETA and the like, uh, marauding invaders to have to pay the Animal Legal Defense Fund, PETA, Center for Food Safety, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's going to hurt. And um, those fees are going to continue to accrue while the appeal is, is, is pending. So, I mean, I think there's some... Uh, some reason for them not to appeal. We feel really confident in the reasoning of the decision, but I would be surprised if they don't. Yeah, that, that is great news about attorney's fees. And and also great news about the kind of press you've been getting. I, I assume you're pretty pleased. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think that journalists generally recognize that even if they are avid meat eaters, this type of law is is scary. I mean, if you are going to criminalize whistleblowing because you don't like that it's been happening in your industry, you know what stops it from happening in the nursing home industry or the childcare industry? And um, it's it's really a frightening thing. And I think a lot of journalists can relate to closing off investigative journalism. Um, but yeah, we're we're very excited, and I think you know um, that's we we expected to win. But it's always nice to to have that uh, vindication from an Article Three judge. Yeah, and to win big, it's always good to win big. Right, exactly. <laughs> and to, to win get big and completely, and to get an incredible editorial in the New York Times, which right. not, I mean, it, it agag has always been an issue. I think that the press has been more on the side of animal protection groups because it is, yes. you know, a freedom of the press kind of issue. But the New York right. Times editorial was really all about the animals. I was really, yeah. really impressed. It was, it, it. No, I mean, you don't often get the full editorial board of the New York Times taking up an animal rights issue, much less talking about the animals, right? Yeah, no, it was very powerful. Um, there's also, of course, litigation currently pending in Utah. Is that statute different in any important ways? Um, you know, there's there, not in an important way, not ways that are going to make all of the existing gang laws have slight variations because, you know, someone else drafted them a little bit. They came from a template somewhere we speculate from Alec and, um, but they, um, they all have slight variation and the Utah statute, um, is facing the exact same challenges though. It, it criminalizes the recording and that raises the same issues that, uh, Judge Winmo, um, uh, presented in his order, and it also criminalizes the access through deception. So, you know, we're, we have the very much a, a, a similar um, action pending, and, you know, I think summary judgment will hopefully um, result in a victory in Utah as well. Um, the state, you know, to just briefly explain the difference in the two cases at this point, the state has really played um, defense in Utah. I mean, they have dragged this out as long as possible. They are trying to argue at every turn that we just can't procedurally bring this case. Um, the state of Idaho sort of said, to their credit in some ways, look, we think this case gets to go forward, but we think we win on the merits of the First Amendment equal protection. The state of Utah is just refusing to fight about the First Amendment equal protection. They are basically saying, we don't think that this group of people is allowed to sue. We don't think they have standing. We don't think there's a, excuse me, actual injury. And so we've been marred in that for actually years um, and have prevailed so far. Uh, and now they are seeking depositions, right? I mean, it's sort of the classic um, civil litigation stall tactic. I mean, they're trying to depose all sorts of people at the various organizations to somehow prove that, you know, these groups are not injured um, by this law. I mean, it's one of the great fictions of law, right, that you need article to, to prove that there's a case or controversy. The Animal Legal Defense Fund has to have sufficiently planned out an investigation. 
you know, we did attest to that. We have a test to it publicly, um, you know, under penalty of perjury, and it will come out. But the state of Utah is saying, well, we're not sure that their injury is concrete enough. Um, so maybe we shouldn't talk about this case. Um, and they're, you know, going to drag us through depositions and the like for that. Well, they're certainly not going to be more eager to get into court having right. seen uh, the Idaho decision. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, I think summary judgment will eventually happen there probably in the early fall, even maybe this, this month there will be depositions and, uh, and then we'll be moving forward. And of course, there are other ag-gag approaches in other states. And it, I, I mean, it seems clear that the industry kind of knew that they had maybe stepped over the line in Idaho and has tried to reformulate ag-gag and take different approaches. Uh, can, for example, the recent North Carolina law, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... So the North Carolina law, um, I would say the primary thing that's interesting about it, and this was uh, just a, by way of reminder, I think it was around the 1st of April um, enacted, and this was over a governor's veto. So um, very popular with the state legislature, not so much with the governor. And it makes a tort um, I think the fine is something like $500 a day. So it would be prohibitive, I think, for many organizations to try to do a two-week or 30-day investigation, excuse me, $5,000 a day, um, to do a 30-day or you know two-month investigation of a facility. And it, it basically you know, makes one civilly liable for all the same things we talked about under the uh, Idaho statute. Instead of making it a crime, it says that the... Um, employer or the industry may sue. The primary difference other than that it's civil instead of criminal is that it does in fact apply to, um, with a couple of exceptions, every industry in the state. So it's written to apply to anyone who takes and does an employment-based investigation. Um, and that's sort of even scarier in its breadth. Um, and you know, it poses novel challenges for proving that the law is content-based, but I think it um, probably still is because it's limiting speech about businesses as opposed to um, private entities. But you know, this is a law that, that quite literally makes it um, unlawful, uh, provides a tort cause of action for someone to engage in whistleblowing and when there's child abuse, to engage in whistleblowing when there is um, elder abuse, um, bank fraud. Um, every industry is swept up in the, in the North Carolina law. Yeah, it's truly a horrifying law. And, and it shows how far the legislators will go to protect the ag industry, because this was clearly originated in the ag industry. And they just drew in these other industries in order to make it look like it wasn't content-based. And as a result, we're willing to face opposition from powerful lobbyists like AARP. And they still got it passed. Exactly. I mean, the power of ag in North Carolina legislature is just unprecedented. No, I mean, it's, it's a shocking, I mean, you know, that it reminds us, there's, there's a famous concurrence in a Supreme Court decision called Railway Express where Justice Jackson says, you know, the, the feature of equal protection that's so important is that it it guards against a single group being singled out for disadvantage. That's sort of the purpose of equal protection, right? And that's what we saw in the, in the Idaho case. And he says, you know, laws that are generally applicable are less scary because the political 
you know, democracy will rise up, that people will make them accountable. Um, and increasingly, I'm skeptical that the democracy can work with these large, particularly egg industries. Right? I mean, this is an instance where everyone's self-interest in your food, in your relatives, in your children was at issue. And the state elected representatives of the people of North Carolina overrode a governor veto and, you know, made it illegal to engage in any whistleblowing in the state uh, um, by video. I mean, that's shocking. It, really, it truly is. Uh, and, and of course, the other approach that's been tried in many states, and I think passed only in Missouri, is the quick reporting types, types of law. That's a totally different approach. And do you think the, the laws that require uh, animal abuse to be reported quickly, which sounds good, only is actually meant to forestall long-term investigations. Do you think those will survive a constitutional challenge? I don't. I mean, I think that those laws, I've, I've always, I've been very keen to challenge Missouri's law and um, have had to um, kind of hold myself back from, from doing so because I, I find it so offensive. Colorado was sort of close to passing a similar law. Um, and I think it was important to get a win or a couple of wins before challenging Missouri because it puts Missouri law in context. But laws like Missouri um, are going to face a lot of constitutional scrutiny once the dialogue uh, in the court shifts. And it's not controversial or even contested to say, well, of course, recording and documenting on this highly regulated industry is a form of speech. Once we're there, I don't think that it's so difficult to see how quick reporting laws fail, right? The quick reporting laws require you to turn over your videos or your information in some short period of time, 12 hours, 48 hours. Um, and if you were to put that in any other context, if you were, um, I was talking to a person in the school at the University of Minnesota, um, Heidi Kittrosser, and she noted, you know, if you were to put this in any other context and imagine a journalist who is forced to run their story or complete their report within 24 hours or 48 hours on such an issue, <clears throat> we would immediately say there's no way that survives First Amendment scrutiny. Um, and it's just that it's entangled with this kind of recording and the industry. Um, but I think that it will not be very difficult to win in states like Missouri um, once we have these initial victories like we did in Idaho, which I think were, you know, it's great to have them. It's important to have them. But I always thought this would, would come. And the Missouri-type statutes, I think, are... Um, necessarily kind of a second wave of litigation. Well, they're, they're, they're a second wave of their idea of how to get past the First Amendment and hopefully the second wave of, of them going down in flames. <laughs> right, right. It's, it, it might be their second wave of, of effort. Um, and it, you know, it makes them, it has more public appeal. It's definitely the case that <clears throat> saying you have to report something, um, the sponsors of the bill then rather than saying, Look, we don't want to protect the industry. We want to, um, you know, hide our abuses. Get to get on the floor of their legislatures and say things like, "This is all about protecting animals," mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it was, you know, in danger of passing in Colorado. Was that the sponsor insisted that uh, you know he just wanted to protect animals from abuse? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it's charming. Cow that's uh, you know minutes from slaughter that is hit. You have to out the investigator and ruin the entire investigation. Um, but it, you know they have much more public appeal and, and salience, and I think that's why they're somewhat harder to um, stop politically. But legally, um, 
I've always thought they were they were vulnerable. They're just probably best wait best wait and challenge them until we um, have conclusive and final victories in these these first states state out of Utah. Well, it's great to hear that you're that you're on that case as well, and or will be, and yeah. that you're on the side of the animals, Justin. I'm so glad that you're doing all that you're doing, and it sounds like there's some crazy things going on at the University of Denver where you teach at the yeah. law school, and you just were named to hold a professorship specifically dedicated to animal law. Can you tell us about that? It is a great thing. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing world. As far as I know, the the first one we have, uh, yeah, the Animal Legal Defense Fund um, sponsored a, a chair here at the University of Denver, uh, and I'm the inaugural Animal Legal Defense Fund professor. And it's, uh, I mean, it's it's really exciting. I, I have to tell you, the students uh, have been just pouring in with kind of celebratory emails and saying, oh, this is so great, because on the ground what it means is that the administration has freed me up to teach um, all kinds of upper-level animal law classes that so far they know aren't offered anywhere else in the country. I mean, Lewis and Clark has an unbelievable program, but um, I'm now free to offer not just sort of clinical classes in animal law, but in the fall I'm teaching a constitutional animal law class that I'm creating whole class cloth. I'm going to teach a criminal animal law class, sort of a curriculum that was, you know, I think totally unheard of 10 years ago. So it's, it's really exciting. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for your students. I want to come go back to law school at, at the University of Denver. <laughs> well, that would be fun. This is really, really you amazing come out news. Visit anytime. I'd love to have you. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Animal Law Podcast. This has been unbelievably enlightening. And I, I feel like I know everything about AgGag now. And <laughs> Well, thank you. I'll, I'll call you back when I get confused. <laughs> um, no, thank you. It's great. It was really a pleasure to be on here, and thanks for doing the show. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Animal Law Podcast. The Animal Law Podcast is part of the Our Hen House podcast family, and you can also listen to our signature weekly Our Hen House podcast. You can find it on iTunes or Stitcher or on ourhenhouse.org. There are nearly 300 episodes already recorded, so you've got your work cut out for you. As a 501c3, Our Hen House relies on your contributions to keep our work going and to keep vegan indie media alive. So we hope you'll support us by becoming a flock member. It's $15 a month or $150 a year. And if you do, we'll send you a tote bag and exclusive login info. And that will give you access to exclusive content, giveaways, and it will also give you access to the vibrant private Our Hen House Facebook group where people are having the most interesting, fascinating discussions every single day. You can go to OurHenHouse.org and click on Donate. Follow us, please, on Facebook and Twitter at Our Hen House. And you can contact us by clicking on Contact at OurHenHouse.org or just by emailing us at info at OurHenHouse.org. I'm Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for being here today. So long.